start with, where did your interest about the First World War start, or when did it start? My first introduction was at school, and I've still got the book, Wilfred Owen Poems. Um, they're very powerful, I mean, it's sort of fairly uh, red meat um, for a young boy, um, and uh, I think we were all very, very taken with it. Um, one of my grandfathers actually fought in the uh, First World War. I didn't know him. He was a, a Scotsman, a Scottish um, headmaster, um, who'd um, joined up with his brother, and oddly for a graduate had joined the ranks. Um, and as I got older, I got more interested in him and found out more about him, um, to the point where now, in middle age, I've got completely obsessed uh, with the First World War, and I made endless programmes about it, and um, I keep trying to make more. Um, so I, I do find it, and always have done, sort of totally riveting. Do you have any idea why that is so? I think it is the combination of innocence and horror. I cannot think of another war where people have gone into it knowing so little about what would happen. Um, and it is that literary um, phenomenon of where you know the end of the story and they don't. And uh, that is just almost too awful. Mm. Um, the Powell's Brigades, the Eton Rifles, all that youthful optimism, and the best of it, not the snobbiest bit, not the sort of grittiest bit, but that sort of fresh-faced willingness. And, you know, 1916, really, that's the end of that. Uh, we don't have it again as a country, and I'm not sure many humans have it again. Um, you know, there may be a few suicide bombers who are that naive. There may be that level um, of sort of openness, but no, I mean, it's, it, it went, and it's extraordinary to watch it. Yeah. And do you think that the, the war itself changed attitude to warfare in Britain? Yes, I think the First World War changed everything in Britain, um, and it certainly um, changed um, the attitude to going to war. I and mean, the Second World War is a very reluctant war. It's extraordinary when you compare and contrast the opening of the war, I mean, the broadcast from... Um, the Archbishop from Temple, um, just saying, look, we've got to do this. No one wants to. Um, and the whole, you know, conscription, the whole feeling of the Second World War is of a, of a duty that has to be done. There's no sense of adventure, no sense of um, mission, no sense of... Mission's the wrong word. There is no... There is none of that gung-hoery um, that's there. And you just don't get that again. Um, and I think that's really interesting. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you were talking about your grandfather in the Scottish Regiment, and that was something you explored in the programme, um, Who Do You Think You Are? Was that, was that the first time you'd ex explored into your family history and come up with those contacts? Or? Who Do You Think You Are was fantastic, because I had the BBC to do the research for me. Um, and my grandfather was in the Highland Light Infantry, um, and like a lot of Scottish soldiers, his military records were all burnt during the Blitz in the Second World War. So it's very difficult to, to get at that history. Um, whereas luckily, with the, the resources of the Beeb, um, we found a postcard my sister had in a trunk from a young Frenchman who'd written to my grandfather saying, thank you for liberating our village. And then we found out where the village was, and then we found out what the regiment were doing there, and we found the actual battlefield. And I walked over it. And, uh, and it was almost embarrassing. I mean, you think... Gosh, it's 90 years later, who cares? I mean, the mayor turned out. Um, she gave a civic reception for us, and in a place called the Place des Écossais. Um, and, you know, we had all these old people telling me how incredibly grateful they were. And we've 
I've forgotten the details of this war, um, who was occupied and when. Yeah. Um, and I found that very, very moving. Yeah. And also the knowledge that my grandfather on this assault, and the odds of coming through it um, appear to have been about one in two. Um, the casualties were absolutely enormous um, in this advance. And, um, you know, he turned up unscathed at the end of the war. It must have been an extraordinary experience walking over the ground your grandfather did. In yes, literally. I mean, I was thinking, I'm walking over this um, on a sunny day um, in France. It's a ploughed field. You were walking over this in full kit plus kilt, which I gather. I met, again, the BBC dug up an old friend of my grandfather's um, who said he described the kit as the worst bit of military equipment ever. Um, it got wet and got fantastically heavy. It froze and cut your legs to bits. The lice got in the seams. Um, you know, it's just amazing any of them just walked, let alone fought at the end of it. Um, so, you know, to walk that sort of hundred yards, which he walked across in fog under gunfire, and then they'd walk back again uh, <laughs> uh, straight away and lost all the ground, um, and then found the Germans had gone anyway, so they walked it back again. Uh, well, it was extraordinary. From right, you then went on to do the two Channel 4 programmes, Not Forgotten and Not Forgotten Shot at Dawn. And a running theme in that, and in, I think forwards to a couple of books you've written, was the need to remember. Yes. Uh, and that's obviously something you feel very strongly about, the need to remember what happened in those years. Yes, I, and I do feel that um, it's, uh, it's part of the national history, which is, um, it's done well in schools, but I think it's sort of left there. Um, and there is no sense beyond that of this being um, an absolutely crucial bit of our history. Um, and I think that is, um, I think that's really unfortunate. And if you were being very sociological about it, you would say, you know, we're always told the white working class of Britain has no history. They're ignored. They're told they have nothing to be proud of. Look at it. <laughs> it's their war. I mean, they're nothing but stories of uh, heroism, endurance, steadfastness, extraordinary courage you know, from that class. And the idea that um, that history is going to be lost seems to me um, just a real error in terms of um, the way we look at our own country. Did you perceive that in, in the sense of the public reaction to the programme? So they, they struck me as being very popular, um, but have you had feedback to say, well, people were thinking along those lines, it is important to remember? Yeah, I've never had such feedback. Um, yeah. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters. Um, I could have made another ten programmes. Um, and the awful thing about making documentaries is you get all the good material afterwards um, because people just write in. Um, so, you know, we just found more relatives, more brilliant stories, um, and more people saying, um, I really enjoyed this. And, I mean, it was a very simple premise. It was saying, look at these sort of memorials around which you walk past every day and you never look at. You know, they're real people. Just imagine what his life was like. And then we went and did it. Um, with, the, with the shot at dawn, did you ever get the negative reaction, which, when it surrounds the, um, you know, the whole issue of shooting the soldiers for, for whatever offence it was, some people say, well, we forget it, or even some people might extremely say they deserved it. And then there's the other, probably larger reaction, saying, no, they didn't. Yeah, no, I mean, the shot at dawn was very interesting. I mean, some families didn't want to do, have anything to do with it. I mean, it's still you know, something they don't want to talk about. Um, and others were very keen um, to investigate it, just saying, well, you know, it happened, let's look at it. 
I mean, I thought the most interesting thing about doing the film was realising that it's a very complicated business. Um, and some of the people who were shot at dawn were in no way innocent. Um, they didn't have shell shock. Um, I mean, the, the worst case was the man who'd, uh, on a train going towards the front, had robbed all of his comrades when they were asleep and then deserted. Quite difficult um, to feel uh, this is a, an innocent victim. Um, I mean, I ended up concluding by saying they were all victims. Um, and he was shot. Uh, but he was shot for desertion, and he wasn't shot um, because he was ill. Uh, <laughs> you know, he was shot because, um, you know, uh, he was meant to be on that train with them. Yeah. And so there was a sort of spectrum of people, really, um, from, I mean, appalling cases of miscarriages, sort of men quite clearly far too ill to, um, you know, be anywhere near the front line, symptoms misdiagnosed, um, you know, down to those who were, you know, would have been in jail in any case, and then because it was a war, and because we were talking about 1914, there was capital punishment at home, and no protests there. <laughs> you know, these things um, were treated differently. So it was, um, it gave, I, I'm past the pleasure of doing it, was to give a different um, slant on that, um, that sort of mythic picture of, um, my goodness, um, they've, um, they've shot him. Um, faceless military authority blowing up innocent 16-year-olds. Um, wasn't quite like that. Yeah. And also, you know, there were something like um, 3,000 um, uh, cases and there were 300 executions. And Haig basically let off or commuted the sentence of 90% of the men that came in front of him, which, you know, when you're thinking Butcher Hague, it's a slightly different picture uh, and worth, worth considering. Yes, on, the, on our old archive, we've got audio interviews with uh, the widow of Harry Farr from the 60s. And it's interesting, Clash, you're talking about remembrance because, in a way, she didn't want to remember. She tried to blot yeah. out the First World War until someone had started talking to her in the 60s about it. Yeah. And did you find that with Shot at Dawn as you that people didn't want to remember, didn't want to talk about it? And then they got fascinated and they wanted to know. Um, and I think there is sufficient time has gone past you know if it's two generations away then it's no longer a matter of family shame it's a matter of gosh what would I have done yes. uh, I think one of the examples you had was of a, a woman that had never actually been put in place because there was a debate in the town where the oh, that was in the village that was this fellow called Kerwin that was in um, the first one and that was very interesting because that isn't what you'd expect. This man had joined up with all the other lads from the village and then 12 of them hadn't come back and uh, they were going to put a memorial up without his name on it because he'd been shot at dawn um, for desertion. But again, he'd been a professional soldier before and gone through probably the worst of the campaigns in the first two years and had cracked up, you know, and they shot him. Um, and the, the parents of the other dead boys said he was their friend, we're not having a memorial without his name on it. So there was no memorial in that village. Not out of a sense of shame, but out of a sense of, well, we'll have nothing then if we can't have him up there. And then they put up a memorial this year, in the last year, last year through a, um, a local campaigner. Excellent. Uh, it's a great story. Yes. Um, but they were, they were full of those. We did five stories a programme, you know, five names from various memorials. If you think there's sort of 700,000 up there, that's that many lives. 
the uh, on the website there was the winner of the competition by the school in I think it was Seven Kings that did a, a presentation where they followed the names mm. of men, and obviously the. That's hit home with a younger generation. Mm. Do you feel that the war is applicable to that younger generation? Are they still interested in it as much as you and I are as, as obsessed with it? Um, yes, I think I think they they are if it's presented um, interestingly. I mean, I must admit, I think it is done well at schools, or it's, it's done well at the schools I know about. I don't know if it's done well everywhere. Um, I'm the teacher at my son's school. Um, had a class of 20 people and just went and found people with the same surname. And then took them all. Um, I mean, and the same um, Christian name. So you know, there's a William Hislop, and he said, "Look, that's you, age 17." I mean, pretty um, easy um, to get the point, particularly with boys. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, the literature is terribly good too, um, which helps. Yes. And I think the there's a broader literature emerging. Um, I mean, it was. Um, very specific to start with, um, but I think there's more of it coming, and it just becomes more interesting. Yeah, I was going to come on to the literature in a second. We just mm. finished this, and I'm going to play amateur sociology. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, if you read the, the, the tabloids at the moment, which I'm sure you do, um, the, the depiction of young people is of you know they're out of control. They've got no sense of loyalty, honour, or anything yeah. like that. They're just interested in where they get the next drink from. Yeah. And if you compare that to the generation of the the glorious August of 1914, yes. and the the things which you've unearthed and many people have about that sense of loyalty amongst the troops that they were doing it because they had to do it yep. or do or die. Is do you perceive there's a clash there that you know? Well, how can we make this what yes. they were feeling applicable to the younger generation? I don't. I mean, I'm I'm always nervous about um, doing. Um, it's all gone to the dogs. Um, you know, largely because there were so many funny stories about that I unearthed about um, and that lovely Manxman who's written a brilliant diary who became a socialist and a pacifist after the war. Do you know the man I mean? His name's gone in the first programme. But, I mean, the opening bit of his um, diary is the fact that he got um, court-martialed for getting pissed while on duty um, uh, in barracks along with another bloke and then was sent to France and told by the judge, you better not do this there or you'll get shot. And of course, the fellow he was with did exactly that and got shot. So I'm I'm, I'm worried about saying, you know, it's all over um, the young people of today. What what is interesting is that um, the working class soldiers were incredibly literate. They could read or write. They wrote diaries and they could express themselves. Um, uh, poetry was something that they all did. Um, you know, it it wasn't an outlet only for public school officers. Um, you know, a lot of the best of it, what you know, that we have left is. But um, that range of sort of um, uh, education, I think, is shocking now when you go back. Mm. I mean, you, you would not find that amongst. Well, you, this is your um, field, not mine, but my guess is amongst sixteen-year-old school leavers, you would not find that now, and that's a definite loss, and that's something they had. Um, that we've failed to give um, a particular generation. So um, that, I mean, is certainly true, mm. and I think you can see that. Mm. Um, you can see it in things like the wipers' time, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can see, you can see the the morality that underpinned that in that sort of um, cohesion of things like the town units and the professional units and the 
the city yeomanry and the Grimsby lot and the what were they called the um, uh, the civil service union and just there was a sort of feeling of belonging to a set of communities which were part of a, a larger one and I don't think we had that much either. No. So those things were definitely there. Mm. Um, and they survived under um, extraordinary under the, the the ultimate stress. Just finally before moving on to the poetry, yeah. um, I was struck by, a, I, I think I read an interview with you, where you said one of the things that you often wrestle with is with how you would have behaved in mm. this situation. And I, I think, I've I gone think all that. men do. Well, it's Dr. Johnson's that every man feels less about himself than not having been a soldier. Um, and I think that's, that's still true. Because um, you don't know. Um, and that's part of the sort of the extraordinary thing about watching. I mean, it's, it's much clearer in some of the troop literature of that, that sense of um, we're going to do it because we're going to do it. Poetry, you know, about called keeping it up, going on particularly in the last two years of the war. It's all about sticking it out. I mean, the, the glory's gone, the, the uh, wonderful less people saying, oh, nobody takes jingoism around here, we'd give them a good beating if they did. I mean, you don't turn up to the front line and say, come on, chaps, let's have a go at the Hun. Um, you know, no one's interested in that. Uh, what they're interested in is grinding out till the end of the war and winning. The we're here because we're here spirit. Yeah. yeah. And that was very strong, and that you know that is amazing in itself, really. Um, they kept going. They did, yes. You you you've already touched on this that you you encountered the poetry. I think it was Wilfred Owens, the first poet, yeah. when you were at school. Um, did that stick out to you as something completely different in the sense in, in the context of context of other poetry that you'd studied and other literature that you'd studied? Um, I think it's the first um, anti-war poetry that I'd come across. Um, I mean, I'd been to prep school and read lots of stirring uh, martial poetry, um, but I hadn't read anything about um, how awful it was. Um, and then um, their material was probably the worst of all. Um, I know there's no consensus on why the First World War was more ghastly than anything else, but I think trench warfare um, that level of artillery and gas combined made for sort of an unbearable um, sort of concoction mm. of sort of mechanised warfare. I mean, so I think I think that was shocking, you know. Um, so did you once you you'd read Owen? Did you then start trying to pick up other poets and say, oh, um, Yeah, then it was Sassoon, and um, mm. uh, I think we did most of the famous ones and then I read you know um, Rob Graves and um, but I mean in my adult life I've been very interested in the argument that what we have come to think of as the literature of the First World War was basically all produced and published in 1930 and it is the literature of failure it's the literature of the depression it's the First World War seen through the prism of a failed piece um, and what I can gauge about the feeling in, you know, 1918 to 20 onwards uh, was a rather different mood. Um, if not exactly victorious, then there was a sense of something having been achieved, um, which was all lost. So the, um, 
the 30s um, created its own image, as it were, or a very specific image of the First World War. I mean, just as Oh, What a Lovely War was a terrifically successful film in the 60s, and you look at the film, and it's about the 60s, um, you know, it's about rebelling against Tory authority. It's, it's not necessarily, um, you know, pinpoint accurate reading of um, what it was like during the First World War. But, you know, all eras really write history in their own image. Um, but I became aware that's very true of the First World War. Mm. Yeah, we, the great clashes between the historian and the, the literature scholar who they say, well, the historians will say Owen and Sassoon do not, are not representative of the attitudes um, to the war at the time. No. And I suppose, to follow on what you were saying, like, the interesting thing about Owen and Sassoon is when they're writing their anti-war project, it's during the war, obviously, Owen yeah. didn't survive that. So do you feel that they are a suitable legacy in terms of the attitude to the war, or were you picking up other things in the Wipers' times? Um, the Wipers' I think, is really interesting because of... Um, an extraordinary level, level of stoical black humour, which obviously I find incredibly appealing, but it does strike me as quite brilliant um, uh, on its own terms. The idea um, that um, in the middle of um, you know this absolutely appalling war, um, this Fred Roberts um, finds an old printing press and decides he's going to knock out, a, of all things, a satirical magazine while under fire... Um, so, um, you know, the first time the flamethrower is introduced, um, they write a fake um, variety handout of a new novelty act called the Flammenwerfers uh, who are going to come and, um, you know, and you're raw. I mean, they did all those jokes. You know, it's a gas. You know, they've been killed by chlorine gas. Um, and it's, I think it's brilliantly funny um, and rude and um, very, very English. Um, that's unfair, very British I think um, it's a quality that was wider than that um, the idea of having an agony column where it says are there any circumstances where you'd be justified in killing your commanding officer yes of course, um, obviously we are you're thinking this is going through you know it's being read and laughed at by a large number of troops oh to be in Belgium now that spring's here it's going to be over by Christmas no one knows which Christmas but that's in their Christmas issue. I mean, they did the jokes a hundred years before Blackadder. All of them. It's interesting, Roberts was very fed up with a lot of the war literature when it came out. In 1930, he wrote an introduction to a collection of the Wipers' Times in which he said, I'm sure you want me to tell you about smoke rising over a small hamlet, of, about the chaplain being pissed out of his head on whiskey and um, putting a revolver to the men's heads. He said, but sorry, um, I'm not going to give you that. You can read that somewhere else. Um, you know, and you just thought, well, this isn't an old boar writing. You know, he was decorated with the MC in the middle of the Battle of the Somme uh, for gallantry, conspicuous gallantry. Um, and he fought right the way through. Neuve Chapelle, Somme, right the way through and was demobbed in 1918. And he was back in Ypres. I mean, you know, he'd seen the lot. Um, so had his men. They reacted in a different way. Um, and I think when we're talking about poetry, there's a very funny bit in Roberts where he says, oh, God, there's been an, another outbreak of poetitis. He said, everyone is just sending me poetry. He was the editor, and they had contributions from all the troops. And he said, will you stop sending me poetry? Uh, there's nothing but poems coming in. Um, 
but actually he printed loads of poems and there's a very moving one called My Mate it's a very um, famous poem which is uh, really you know it's Tommy Atkins's hymn of love to his fellow soldier which I mean it's, it's crude and it's not particularly brilliantly done but it is very effective and they're not as polished as the public school boys but you know they are um, they are extraordinary voices I think so, um, having read The Wiper's Times now and, and your view that the, the, the 30s was that, that prism, as you say, looking yeah. back on a failed piece, has your attitude to the, to the war poets, Wilfred Owen Sassoon, changed over time? Not really. I mean, I, I read the Owen again and, um, very recently and just thought how brilliant um, those poems are. Um, and it's, it's not that um, I don't think they're any good. I just think there were other voices. Um, and they have been taken as all there was. I mean, I think they do express the horror quite wonderfully. Um, it's like the, the painting of the um, the ghast, um, that uh, sergeant, yes. um, which I saw again and just was completely blown away by how brilliant it was. And that that is what the First World War was about. But there were some other bits, um, and it is... I think Max Arthur's has done it really well in his voices and again in those pictures. You, you, yes, there is the horror um, and um, the horror of the light you haven't seen before and that's expressed. But, um, you know, it lasted for four years and not every day was the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And there are other things that were happening in the trenches and whatever that were um, worth remembering, A, and also certainly vital in changing how Britain was. And when I came, I was doing that programme about the memorials, and I thought, the first one I saw where there were no ranks, the dead were all just listed. Um, I mean, this is the first time in British history. Um, and it was because the people in the trenches said, we fought together, we're going to die together. Um, and it was that feeling of, well something really fundamental had changed. Um, and when they came back, you know, forward for the rest of the century, that's when it all happened. Mm. I think it's difficult to read the history of the century, certainly the, the middle bit of it, without remembering that someone said there was an enormous black cloud over Britain of grief. Um, and it's just the fact that everyone had lost someone. And... Um, we tend to assume that everyone goes on and it's normal and they do their things, but actually for almost the entire country, everybody was spending every day some bit of it thinking they're dead. I always found that extraordinary.